morning, Springs Community Church, everybody watching online. I'm John. I have the privilege of serving the Springs as pastor. I'm so excited to be with you guys. Uh, Last week, if you tracked with us, we kicked off a new mini-series that we're calling Monarchy. We are taking a look at the triumphs and tragedies of three of Israel's most famous kings. Last week, Garrison, he came and he brought the thunders. He talked about King Saul, and specifically, he referenced this truth how the fear of God is incompatible with the fear of men. I'm excited to be with you this morning as we talk about King David. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, then here's what you may know, that no one is talked about more in your Bible than King David besides Jesus Christ. Next to Christ, more is written about him from paragraphs to verses to content to chapters. And today, here's the task that I have. How do you synthesize this amazingly faithful and yet at times tragically sinful man into one sermon. I want to start by reading a summary verse that many of us who know about King David were familiar with his life, and then I'm going to pray. The summary verse, it's Acts 13. And when he had removed him, this is speaking about God and King Saul, removing Saul as king of Israel. And when he had removed him, God raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the chance to come, to gather around your word, to encourage and to strengthen our hearts. God, would you please do that? For those of us gathered in person, those of us watching online, sitting on couches with kids, running around, would you help our hearts to focus on you as we fight to learn what it looks like? What does it mean to be a man or a woman after your own heart? How do we take this phrase that's become so commonplace, it's almost cliche, and make it true and make it ours? Would you please help me to do that? Would you use this time for that? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever had a moment where you examine your own life or leadership or influence and you just look back and you say, hey, that was a colossal fail? Well, tragically, right, and they're getting better, I've had those moments. I want to describe one of those moments for you of when I was back in college. Some of you, you may have known about this, and this is probably a little more detailed than what you knew about it before. But there I was, I was in college, I was not a believer in Jesus Christ, I was lost, I was foolish, I was led astray, I was all of that, and I was also the president of my fraternity. I was the president of my fraternity, and one day, we get all of our fraternity, we get this email message from the dean of fraternity and sorority life, saying, hey, come meet us here, it was a classroom, we need to talk. Now, our fraternity, we'd already had a history of being in trouble. So you get this email, and all of a sudden, you know it's not a good thing. Like, no one wants to get the email or the message or come over the intercom. Hi, we'd like to ask John to come down to the principal's office. No one wants that. I come, I get the guys. We're walking towards this classroom. We walk in the door. There's the head of Greek life. To his side is the head of our national fraternity chapter. We sit down, and he just starts with, we are kicking your fraternity off campus, and you are not allowed to operate as a fraternity off campus. This fraternity will no longer be allowed to exist at our university until all of you have graduated. 
air goes out of the room. I am the president. There was nothing to be said. There's nothing to be done. We leave the room and we walk back to the fraternity. And there is a uh, police officer stationed outside of our fraternity who would stay with us there for the next two weeks until we all moved out. I share this moment where it all collapsed because it actually leads back to a simple decision. You see, before everything fell apart, there was a moment where the fraternity came together. We all got in this one room. It was right at the front of our fraternity house. We put everybody in, couches. We're sitting there, and we are discussing one decision. And who is the, uh, excuse me, who is the ultimate and final decision maker in this moment? Yours truly. We were discussing, hey, we have these new pledges, some people who wanted to rush the fraternity. We have these new pledges coming. We should make them. It was like a dumb, stupid eating thing. Let's eat a bunch of nasty food, eat way too much food. Ridiculous, terrible, foolish. I totally agree with you. The whole room is sitting there. We'd already been in trouble. We're already on probation. And I'm saying, guys, if we do this, we're going to get caught. If we get caught, we might get kicked off. Let's not do this. And the whole fraternity is sitting there saying, no, 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 let's still do it. And it was that broken mentality. We went through it. Let's make them go through it. And there I am as the president. All I have to do, and I know what the right decision is. I know what, what the school has asked of us, what our national chapter has asked of us, what this group of people who put me in a position to be a president to make hard decisions. I know what's being asked. What's being asked is just do the right thing. And right there, I turn to the crowd and I just say, okay, if y'all don't want to, then we won't. That was the moment where later on, it would end in a police officer outside having to go, why? Because I, when knowing what I was asked to do, I did not make the right call. When knowing what I was asked, I knew there'd be a cost. The fraternity would be upset with me. Maybe they'd call me a dictator or a tyrant, or they wouldn't like me as much. Boo-hoo, I, I know. I didn't make that right decision. Here's the reason I start with that. Here's the reason I start with that. So many times on the journey of a follower of Jesus Christ, there's these moments that are presented to us where we are forced to make decisions. And these decisions, they, they carry weight, especially if it's a matter of, of obedience or faithfulness. There's a potential cost to them. It can be even difficult at times in making them. But how many times do you and I, we know the right thing to do. We know what's being asked of us. And yet because of the cost, because of the concern, because of whatever myriad of reasons, we don't make the right call. I'm so excited today because we're talking about King David. King David, he was an imperfect man. He was amazingly faithful. He had these beautiful moments of triumph. And he had tragic moments where his sin got the better of him, but there's a theme to the life of David. There's this direction to it that I want us to see as we look at scripture today, and here's the direction, here's what David did. David fought imperfectly, but David sought to model this truth. Do what God asks, no matter the cost. Do what God asks no matter the cost. 
you may be wondering why, why I picked that. If you remember back to the verse that we started in prayer over, it was Acts 13, 22, where God is describing David, and he says of David, David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Now, that's this language that many of us, we've heard before, we've known about. It's almost become this Christian cliche. What does it really mean? Here's what it means. Right there at the end of the verse, who will do all my will. If you happen to have the New Living Translation, it translates it, David will do everything I want him to do. What's the direction of a man or a woman after God's own heart? What's the rhythm, imperfect, but the direction of their life? They do what God asks of them, no matter the cost. Guys, I think that when you hear something like that, especially in perhaps if you grew up in church or if you've been a follower of Christ, and I say, hey guys, today we're going to talk about what it means as followers of Jesus to do what God asks, no matter the cost. Many of us might hear that and think, well, yeah, yeah, of course. No, that's easy. That's so simple, of course, if we're talking about David. But here, as we start to do this, here's what I wanted to show you from this. This applies to moments of triumph and good, but as well is tragedy. We'll see it first in a moment with David where he risks losing his life. We'll see it second in a moment of David where in order to honor the will of God, he risks shame and guilt and fear and loss of reputation. Have you ever not done what God asks because you feared the consequences? I have. I made that foolish decision when I was a non-believer. I have made foolish decisions since I have come to believe. We know we are called to do what God asks, but oftentimes we consider the cost too much. We're too fearful to share our faith because of what another might think. We're too scared to respond or to counsel biblically with love because of what they might say or what they might think of us. We're too scared to go out and serve someone sacrificially because what it might, might take away from us. We're too scared to come and take a, uh, a moment of shepherding and leadership presence in our community group, our marriage, our family. Because then what if someone began to point out our flaws? Do you see how we oftentimes we know what God asks, but we don't follow through because we know it comes with a cost. Here's the beauty of David's life. Imperfectly, he sought to do what God asks. No matter the cost, a man after God's own heart. And, and, if, you're, and if you're watching this and, and if you're here and you're a, um, not a believer in Jesus Christ, here's what I imagine you've seen. You have seen Christians say no to things, and they said no to things that you thought was crazy. Let me give you an example. You have seen Christians give away 20% of their income in generosity without ever taking credit for it. So much so, you know that and you looked at it and you're like, man, they could have leased two new trucks for that. Yes, why would they do it? Because they're faithful and they trust God no matter the cost. You have seen Christians fight to steward their purity in dating relationships, in their singleness they, they fight to protect the intimacy in their marriage for the glory of God and the intimacy with a spouse where you look at that and say, hey, you're just too serious. That's not worth it. 
you wouldn't consider those things because those things come with a cost. What I hope you see through today, through the life of David, is while he did what God asks, even though it came with a cost, why he did it. David did it because he sincerely, deeply, tremendously loved God. That he knew how God had a steadfast love towards him that never ended, that was unconditional and saving, and the promises of God were his by faith. That's how followers of Christ are able to do what God asks, no matter the cost. So guys, as we look at that through the life of David, we're going to look at two of his, his um, most prolific or famous stories, if you will. His greatest seeming triumph and his greatest tragedy. The first triumph, many of us might be uh, aware of the story of David and Goliath. So if you have a Bible, you can start turning towards 1 Samuel 17, 40 through 45, where we're going to go after that in examining the tragedy of David, that even though he sought to do what God asks, he was imperfect, he was broken, he was sinful, and he tragically brought sin into his life through a moment, through relationship, through broken decisions with Bathsheba. That will be, we will jump there to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and then we'll end that by looking at Psalm 51. So turn your Bible, though, with me to 1 Samuel 17, 40 through 45, as we talk about how could you, how could I fight out of a love for Christ, sincerely grow in this understanding? How do we do what God asks no matter the cost? But as you're turning there, first thing I want to do is I want to set up the context of David and Goliath. Last week, Garrison, he left it with King Saul. We know the end of Saul's story. It's tragic. As Saul is still king, David is anointed king. Samuel goes to find him. He comes to the household of Jesse. Jesse sends out seven sons, but he leaves David away. Why? David was off tending sheep. David had been a faithful shepherd of sheep, oftentimes spending nights out fighting the, fighting the elements, fighting lions, fighting bears, caring for his sheep, looking to the stars, falling in love with Yahweh. Samuel comes and he looks at the seven and says, no, this, this isn't it, because God leads him, brings David to the crowd, and God says to Samuel, this is the one you are to anoint. I don't look at appearance the way the world does. I look at the heart. What was true of David, he was a man after God's own heart. He wanted to do whatever God wanted. David would go on. He would go on from that moment of anointing to continue to be a shepherd his brothers had joined the Israelite military. They were part of the, the army. The army had gone out to fight this force, the Philistines. They'd shown up to fight against the Philistines, and they had lined up one side against the other, Philistines and Israelites. The Philistines had sent forward a champion. That champion's name is Goliath. Goliath, according to your Bible, was nine feet tall, shield, spear, sword, helmet, a mountain of a man. David's dad said, hey, David, I need you to take supplies to your brothers at the front lines. Will you go to them? David goes, he takes it. As David comes, he hears Goliath mocking God. He hears Goliath mocking God's people, God's army, and the truths of God. And David says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why do we allow this Philistine to mock the truth of our God, the one who saves the steadfast love? No one would fight Goliath. They were scared he would take their life. They were scared that they would lose. 
in this whole army, no one would move forward. David moved forward. David said, I'll fight him. First, they try to say, no, 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 you can't. And then eventually they finally allow David to go. And so who is David? You got to remember Goliath, mountain of a man, nine feet warrior. David is an, likely an eighth grader. He's an eighth grader. And what's he going to do? He's going to pick up five stones. But that takes us to the moment where David, he would have stepped out beyond the Israelites. Goliath would have stepped out beyond the Philistines and they would have gone to fight. What is David doing? Do whatever God asks no matter the cost. So, you have your Bible. Read with me now. I'm going to look in chapter 17, verses 40 through 45. This is David as he comes before Goliath. Then he, this is David, then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. That's Goliath. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come with me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by the gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but hear this. I come to you with the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, of whom you have defied. From this, the the text goes on to describe the battle between them, where David goes out on behalf of God. And what will David do? He will take the five stones. He will choose one. He will place it in his slingshot. He will whip it and he will cast it. It will strike the giant on the forehead. Goliath will fall. Upon Goliath's fall, what will happen? The Israelite army will grow in a sense of courage and ability and they will charge and they will overtake the Philistines. The Israelites will win. Do what God asks, no matter the cost. Here's here's the question though. What was God's will for this moment as the Israelites stood facing the Philistines? What was God asking? God was asking for someone to believe that he was big enough to help them defeat a giant. God was asking for someone to have the faith to step forward in defiance of wickedness and unrighteousness, bringing truth and bearing his name to say, okay, That language won't continue. Righteousness prevails. Though an army won't represent the things of God, an eighth grader would. You see, it didn't take size, it didn't take stature, it didn't take strength. It took David depending on the creator of the universe to be his defender and his deliverer. See, guys, as we think about this, as we talk about it, God is looking for someone to do what he asks. God is always looking to advance his will. But sometimes, though, that can come with a cost. What was this cost to David? It's obvious. There's an entire army that was too scared to take on Goliath. The cost to David was potentially losing his literal life. But what did David do in that moment? He obeyed. He sought 
to do what God asks. The interesting thing, too, is who are we in this story? We'll, we'll talk about more about what David represents later in, in our message, but who are we in this story? You and I, we are that Israelite army. We are the ones standing back, oftentimes knowing what we should do, knowing how we should act in faith, but too fearful, holding back and hoping God just does something to win the day. So as we come and we talk about how we're called to do what God asks, no matter the cost, the question is, where are the areas of your life and mine that while, yes, you may not be called to fight a literal giant, I doubt that you are, right? And don't you dare treat your online Facebook account that way. What are the ways that you and I are called to obey, but they seem so costly that we won't, or, or they seem so costly we try not to even think about it? The simplest form, and we continue to press into this, is this applied to the things of spiritual disciplines? Like for some of you, when I talk about Sabbath and how you are called to rest and remember, to not be productive, to lay aside a portion of your week, not out of legalism, but out of love, knowing Christ is your ultimate Sabbath rest, but to build that practice and rhythm into your life, are you the one that says, I, I don't have the time? I'm too busy. I, I know that's what God is asking, but that cost is just not worth it. Are you the one right now where it comes to even your own holiness? What you represent in your public witness in a community is, is our city and nation continues to grow in the sense of division and turmoil and friction. Are you pouring gasoline on that or are you calling for a gracious sense of righteousness and justice, caring for all and loving, fighting for unity? Do you lean away or do you say for, for such a time as this? Do you see what God's asking but it comes with a cost? You could apply it to your own purity, the stewardship of your decisions, and how you protect, even in your singleness, how you protect your purity now. So Lord willing, you can honor future marital intimacy later. How about your finances? It's so hard, do you see? You know what God has asked, and, and I know, obedience, it's challenging, it's hard, but do you see, David, he was a man after God's own heart. He sought the things of God out of Love. Well, what happens when we do that? It comes with a cost. What was amazing about David is meant to be amazing about you. Obey God no matter the cost. I was thinking about how so many times I can do this in my own life, uh, how followers of Christ can do this, and here's what I think we oftentimes equate um, this call to do what God asks, this call to obey, this call to trust God with our lives even when it's difficult. I think followers of Christ tend to reference that the same way myself, as well as maybe you, tend to reference diets, right? Now, diet, I know that word means a bunch of things. It's got the word die in it, so stay with me. Here's what I mean. Sometimes, if I choose to do a diet, here's generally the way I'll approach it. First week, I go hard. Second week, here's what I tend to do, right? This is me. Maybe I'm projecting onto you, but I doubt it, right? Where I'll come, and here's what I'll do. Hey, the first two meals of the day, they're usually pretty clean, like I'm staying in the diet. But the third one, okay, all of a sudden, it kind of starts to slip a little bit, right? And I go back, but then I think, okay, well, I had the first two, which is great, which is great. 
And then the next day comes, it's like, well, I did that one yesterday. Well, hey, maybe I could just do this a little bit, and then I go maybe two meals, maybe one meal that's clean, two that's not so clean, and then all of a sudden, oh, I got a friend coming into town. I want to hang out. I want to have some fun. And the diet starts to slip. And then two weeks, three weeks later, this kind of on, off, on, off, and then I go to check the results, the things that I'm looking for, and the results aren't there. Yet I stop, and I look back, and I said, man, I have been on a diet this entire time. It's just not working. Now, we know what's silly about it. It's the lack of consistency. It's the lack of follow-through. The different word there, it's the hypocrisy. It's the moments where I say I'm on the diet when in reality, ha, it's a loose term. Church, follower of Christ, David's commitment to doing what God asks was not a loose term. Was he imperfect? Yes. Did he sin? Just wait. We're going to talk about it. But did he have a heart that sought after God? Did he seek to do what God asks, no matter the cost, as a direction of his life? Yes. And what does that bring, guys? Here's the thing. That brings this amazing freedom. What happened after he conquered Goliath by the power of God? Because God did it, not the eighth grade boy. He did it through him. What happened? Freedom came, victory, hope, a a removal of an enemy. That's what awaits the moment when you and I, even though there's cost, we trust God, we lean in, we do what he asks. That's why it's amazing what this book says, how when you and I follow, we live a better life. Having looked at a triumph of David, now I want to look at a tragedy. Now I want to look at a tragedy. If you have a Bible, turn with me. We're now going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is, this is another famous passage where David and Bathsheba, but here's what I want to do. I want to talk about how can a man after God's own heart go all the way from him and Goliath as an eighth grade boy through years of time to a moment of great indiscretion and sin. David would go from slaying Goliath to becoming an armor bearer of King Saul As an armor bearer, he became a soldier. As a soldier, he became the most effective fighting force in all of Israel. It leads to an insecurity in Saul. There's a song that the people would sing. David has killed, or excuse me, Saul has killed thousands. David has killed tens of thousands. It poisons the heart of Saul. Out of his insecurity, Saul begins to make plots to have David killed. He throws spears at him to the point where David, he does not retaliate. Why? He saw Saul as the Lord's anointed. He honored God even when it would cost him. And what does he do? He flees. He runs to the wilderness of Judah and he hides in caves while King Saul continues to hunt him like a dog. There's two times where David is hiding in these caves where he had the chance to take the life of King Saul, to save his own, to end it, to spare his men as they are being hunted. His men are saying, no, 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 you need to take the life. And David says, no. It's not what God has asked me to do. No, no, no. You don't understand, David. If you don't take his life, he's going to take yours. No, no, no. I will do what God asks, no matter the cost. Do you see this direction? Do you see the beauty? David twice spares Saul. Time would go on, and Saul, again, he'd fight the Philistines. Yet in the final battle, Saul would lose his life. He'd be wounded, and he'd make some broken decisions to follow. Following that, David, he'll eventually become the king of Israel. 
He will unite the people. He will lead amazing, victorious battles. He will have a covenant promise from God gifted to him that describes this unending, steadfast, never stopping, never quitting, always in forever kind of love that God has. God will describe to him, hey, David, it's through you. The Messiah will come. Your house and this throne will be a part of my established kingdom forever. David so wanting to reflect and honor God. He wants to build God a temple, a place, and a house of worship of God. But God says, no, David, that's not for you. That'll be for your boy, your son to come. David would go on, and he'd again win victories. But then there'd come a moment where David, he would stop going off to war. And that would take us from this amazing direction and triumph of David's life, though imperfect along the way, faithful, to a moment of great tragedy. Read with me now as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David, he sent Joab. Joab was his head general and his servants with him in all Israel. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged, besieged Rabbah. But David, he remained at Jerusalem, so David stayed back. Here's where you continue to see it go down. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from a couch, from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she was sent and told David, excuse me, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. David, a man after God's own heart, had followed his own. He had not chosen the path of the faithful, but in the moment he lived as the sinful. It's something I'm capable of. It's something you're capable of. But David just doesn't stop here. This moment continues to spiral in sin for David. He's not doing what God asks, no matter the cost here. What would happen here is Uriah the Hittite, that was the husband of Bathsheba. Uriah was one of David's friends. He was one of the generals in his army. Well, his wife is now with pregnant, which means David, he can't cover up the sin, so he brings back Uriah from the battle. He twice, twice, excuse me, he twice tries to get Uriah to be a part of a cover-up through deception and manipulation to cover up the sins of David. When David can't have his sin covered up, he has Uriah murdered. After Uriah is murdered, he marries Bathsheba. We don't know how much time goes on, but here's what we do know from the text. We do know that in this moment, there is no repentance in David. There's a cold heart. There's a heart that was once as a young shepherd boy in a field growing in a love of Yahweh, now remaining in a palace, cold, detached, and uncommitted to repentance. God sends a prophet by the name of Nathan. You can read all this in your Bible. God sends a prophet by the name of Nathan. Now, we don't know how much time has passed. It's likely been about seven to eight months. 
the prophet comes to David and he rebukes David for his sin. At first, David doesn't even know he's talking about him. And then David comes to realize the gravity of what he's done. The coldness of his heart by the power of God begins to thaw as a righteous man rebukes him for the tragic, destructive, sinful decisions that he's made. David is there with Uriah. He realizes the consequences in what is to come. Here's the question. What would you do? What did David do? A way that you can think about this is what is God's will in this moment? What does God want for David in this moment? This moment as the king, the military leader, as well as a tremendous spiritual leader over the nation of Israel. What is God asking for from David? Should David at this moment sit down in shame, accepting consequences, and remove himself from faithfulness? Should he tolerate a sense of, I'm not enough, I'll never be enough, I'm broken, God doesn't want me, God doesn't love me? No, what is God looking for? He's not looking for broken forms of penance, penance, and he is not looking for fake religious activity. God's will is real and sincere repentance. What if you, what if me, what if followers of Jesus Christ in this city what if followers of Jesus Christ in this state? What if followers of Jesus Christ across this nation we saw is the will of God, what he wants for our life, the thing God asks us to do in response to our sin, no matter the cost? What if we held up repentance? What if that is what marked us? Do you think David picks up that mantle? Do you think he shirks it? Or do you think in the moment, by the power of God's spirit, he comes back and he realizes again, I've always been after the heart of God. I will do what God asks, no matter the cost. Turn with me to get a glimpse into how David responds in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a letter written by King David, almost a hymnal given to a choir master for the people of Israel to sing as they recognize David's repentance but it's also this moment of almost like David's journal and diary. David, he explicitly wrote this psalm in response to his grievous sin with Bathsheba, Uriah, the deception, the murder, the cold-heartedness. I want to read a section out of this talking about David. I want to read verses 10 through 17 of Psalm 51. So grab your Bible with me, 10 through 17. Create in me a clean heart, O God, this is David's prayer, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now there's a prayer in there that David prayed that you and I, as new covenant followers of Christ, will never have to pray. And it's this idea of take not your spirit from me. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament operated differently than the Holy Spirit in the New. You cannot lose true believing follower of Christ, God's spirit. You're sealed. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Now hear this part. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Hear the way David describes his sin. 
blood guiltiness. Do you see David try to sugarcoat it? Do you see David try to minimize it? No, no, no. He puts it right there, right in front. And remember, who will come and read this? Who will come and sing this? The people of Israel. David is not hiding his sin. He is bringing it into the light as an act of confession. Though he has sinned against God and God alone, he's making it aware with others. Would you do that in response to your sin? Do what God asks, no matter the cost. Now we get a glimpse into his heart, 15 and on. Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Now hear this, church. For I will not, or excuse me, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. David knew in this moment that God would not delight in a sacrifice or a burnt offering. Those were two aspects of Old Testament worship. What David knew right in this moment is that he could go through the motions. What David knew right in this moment is he could come and create this sense of almost religious activity, religious worship, this show put on a pretend front to make it look like there's repentance uh, repentance in his heart and remorse but there's not. And what does David know that God wants? What does David know that's God's will? It's a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. Church, in response to our sin, David models a beautiful truth that we see throughout God's word. God's will in that moment is you and I, believer, men and women after his own heart, wanting to do what he wills, his will in that moment is repentance. It's turning, and it's this beautiful thing. Why would God want that? Repent, church. It just means to turn around, to come back. It's turning from broken, sinful patterns, the anxiety, the addiction, the drinking, the, the, the hiding in gluttony, the, the whatever it might be. It's turning and saying, I'm going after God. Who is with me? Repentance. David knew that. You see, many of us, we have a tendency to go through the motions, to put on religious activity, to not bring God a broken and contrite heart, but to bring God a burnt offering or a sacrifice, which while in and of themselves would have been true worship, David knows that's not what God wants. God wants justice. God wants repentance. And that's what you see here. That's what he wants for you and that's what he wants from me. He does not want you and me to look Christian, act Christian, talk Christian, walk Christian. He wants us to walk faithful. He wants us to do what he asks, even when it costs us. He wants you, imperfect, broken, busted, growing in faith, finding new seasons of freedom, wanting to love him more. He wants all of that. But with a heart, in the triumphs, when everyone cheers your name because you slay the giant to the tragedies, when you're fearful, when you hide, when you isolate, and when you're scared, to trust him by love and to simply do what he asks, no matter the cost. Guys, we're working through a series we're calling Monarchy, where we are looking at the life of three kings, Saul, David, and the next week we'll talk about Solomon. In the life of David, we see that he's a man after God's own heart. 
we realize what does that mean? He's willing to do the will of God. He says, God, I'll do whatever you want. God, I'll do whatever you ask. And why does he do it? Because he loves him. He believes it's true. He trusts in the promises. He's a forerunner, a type of Christ, the one to come who looks at you and he looks at me and he says, hey, hey, with all your triumphs, with all your tragedies, I'll take you. Your brokenness, your sin, I'll pay for it. The foolishness, the lack of repentance, I'll die for it. I will go to a cross for you because even though I so deeply wish that you were after my heart, you can't fully be. Therefore, I will give my heart for you. He's this beautiful picture of what points to our Savior. You see, in the moment, we are not the one that slays the giant. Jesus Christ has slayed the giant of our sin. He is the one that gives us the strength and the ability and the victory to move forward, to actually come before God, imperfect as we are, still in a fallen nature, yet changed. And to say to God, Lord, would you help me? Lord, would you give me courage? Lord, would you give me strength? Lord, would you give me an ability to sense your presence in me as your spirit guides? But Lord, make me a man, make me a woman. Make me a student. Make me a young adult that will do what you ask, no matter the cost. That's what's coming. God was the hero of David's story. He's the hero of ours. And when he's the hero, you do what he asks. That fraternity that I told you guys about, that we were uh, kicked off campus, the whole thing, because of that broken decision where I knew what was right, but I didn't do it. I had a redemption opportunity. And you don't always get those in life. A few years ago, I actually don't remember the timeline. Uh, it would have been some years ago. A young man called me from Georgia. I, I saw the phone number, and I answered the phone, and I answered, hello, this is John. I, for, I forget the young man's name, but he said, hi, I'm calling to relaunch the fraternity chapter. I am the first returning president. They were going back to campus. I'm the first returning president, and I wanted to call and talk with you and hear your advice. I wanted to call and talk with you and hear what you think I should do as I try to bring back this fraternity to campus. And I'm just sitting here, and in the fraternity, I didn't know the young man, but the whole college environment, it wasn't a lot of Christians, and I'm just sitting here, I'm like, I'm so glad you called me, bud. Here's what I got to share with the young man. I got to tell him the story of what happened to us. I got to tell him my tragic failure as a leader, the failure of the fraternity, it wasn't just on me. There was a whole lot of foolishness. But I got to share with him what was my greatest regret, and he said, well, what was that? My greatest regret is that I did not follow the way of Jesus Christ. And it gets strange on the phone. I said, hey man, can I tell you something? After I left that campus, here's what happened to me. I came to know, I came to believe that there's a God in heaven and he's true. That he has saved me and he has set me free. And though I looked back on college in my life, it carries scars. He redeems all that. Man, I'm telling you, if you are gonna go and you're gonna lead this fraternity, the number one thing that you need is a love and a commitment of a God in heaven who died for you. I asked him if he believed in that God. He didn't. I said, well, man, I would love to be an advisor and a resource to you because Jesus Christ has changed my life. And while I did not do what he asked of me then because I didn't know him, I'm striving imperfectly to do what he asks of me now. And if I can help you, I will. Church, 
It does not matter what the moments of your past are. Every day, mercies are new. You and I get a chance, even though if we've been marked by areas where we have not sought the heart of God in our anger, in our temper, in our finances, in our gluttony, in in our sexuality, in whatever it might be that we have not sought the things of God, every day we can turn, we can trust, and we can say, God, give me the strength, give me the courage to do whatever you ask, no matter the cost. It is such a better life. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the privilege that it is to come talk about you. Talk about what you've done. Talk about what you want to do. Lord, would you make this true of our body? Make us men and women after your heart who want to do whatever you ask, no matter the cost. We need your help to do that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank y'all so much for joining us. Y'all have a great week of worship. See you next Sunday.